Well, we had quite an interesting time last week. Not sure if you noticed, but I ended up leaving immediately after the sermon, believing Angel, my wife, was going into labor. She's pregnant and very ready to go. And so right after the sermon last week, I darted out, grabbed the kids, got in the car, and prepared to go meet her at the hospital because she drove herself. But it turned out to be a false alarm. It's quite disappointing, but we're still waiting. Just, uh, just know that if you see me run out mid-sermon, you know where I'm going. <laughs> that being said, there is one good thing about not having the baby yet, and that is I intended to take us through this very special passage, Matthew 5, 38 through 42, in two parts. Last week was part one, and at least now we get to do part two right away. Two-parters don't really work when there's a big gap in between them. So all this goes to say, you can take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5, and we can do this second part to verses 38 through 42. And it is a special passage. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, which has to be the, some of the most widely known teachings of Jesus. And this morning we come to some verses that contain some of the most widely known sayings of Jesus. Even among those outside the church, there's a familiarity with what he says here. They become popular sayings like, turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. But I would safely wager most probably don't know what they really mean or what Jesus meant when he said them. But our goal, as always, is to open the scriptures, let the text speak for itself. We we set this time aside to be like Bereans, those who study the word, hear from the Lord, and apply it to our lives. We, We want to order our lives around his teaching. We really believe he is the way, the truth, the life. We want to try and get it right. So let's do that together. Let's start by reading this passage, Matthew 5, 38 through 42. He says again, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. and Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Like I said, this is a two-parter. Part one was last week. But we really only got through the first half of verse 39. So let me briefly bring you back up to speed and, and show you what we covered so far. This is the fifth time in chapter 5 where Jesus is making a contrast between his teaching, the way, and, and the way these Jewish leaders misconstru- misconstrued the law of God. They distorted the Torah, and Jesus is correcting them. Here in verse 38, he's picking on their misuse of what was known as the, the lex talionis, the law of retribution. And this really does, does come from the Old Testament. This, this law shows up several times, this eye for an eye law. For example, Deuteronomy 19, verse 21 says, You shall not show pity, life for an eye, uh, life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Without studying this law, you might get the impression that it's harsh, it's vengeful, even unjust, but we found that the exact opposite is true. And last week, we spent plenty of time trying to discern what the, the original law of retribution was all about in the Old Testament. We found that it was designed to help Israel's judges enact fair and just penalties for crimes. Justice demands that those who do do evil bear punishment. But 
a different type of injustice results when there's either when there's either excessive leniency or excessive punishment that doesn't fit the crime. And this law of retribution was meant to guard against both. The punishment was to fit the crime, not more, not less. It's eye for an eye, not life for an eye. It's just. Furthermore, these laws were meant to take the desire for revenge out of the hands of the people. When someone wrongs you, you want to make them pay. You want to get back at them, but usually you just don't want to get back. You want to get ahead. And that, then it becomes no longer justice. It becomes vengeance. But that, is, that, that evil desire is the propensity of the fallen human heart. But these Old Testament laws of retribution were meant to put a check on that sinful heart desire by taking just retribution out of the hands of the people and putting it in the hands of of judges. It should not be left to individuals, especially those who were offended, to be the ones carrying out the demands of justice. I mean, their hearts would be too easily clouded by that desire for revenge. The God's wisdom called for neutral wise, just arbiters to be the ones to enact fair punishments for crimes. God wants the hands of his people unstained by vengeance. And so as we studied, this was the clear intent of the law of retribution in the Old Testament. You can learn a lot more by getting last week's sermon. But the problem was that these Jewish leaders, they took these laws and really went in the opposite direction. And by Christ's day, many were using these eye-for-an-eye laws to justify personal acts of vengeance. Just what these laws were trying to prohibit. The Jews acted as if the Old Testament law gave them their own license to carry out revenge. Whenever someone wronged them, mistreated them, offended them, it's like it was their, their duty to pay the person back, to enact their own personal style of retribution. I mean, they, they have to retaliate. Doesn't God's law say eye for an eye? So it's, I have to do it. But is this kind of personal vendetta the law was trying to avoid? So it is this misuse of the law that Jesus is correcting here in verse 39. That's, that's what's behind this main principle he gives in verse 39. He does this all throughout chapter 5. Again, this is the fifth contrast he gives. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but... I say to you, do not resist an evil person. When someone does you wrong, when someone offends you, it's not wrong to desire justice or retribution. But the point is that it's not meant for you to carry out personally. You can appeal to the authorities to judge the evildoer. And God is so that there's no place for resisting evil. There is. We spent his disciples, to not resist the evildoer. And now we, we actually get to see what, what this might look like in, in daily life and just regular practice. But be warned, it's not easy. Revenge is very easy. Getting back at someone, it's easy. It feels good to our flesh. But just as Christ's kingdom is not of this world, neither are his ways And he leads us in the unexpected way. And that's certainly the case with these four illustrations. But this is the path of peace to which we're called to follow. These four illustrations have given rise to some of Christ's most famous sayings. And we too, we want to appreciate them for all their worth. 
but not detached from their original meaning. So we need to go through these carefully, one by one, really trying to discern the way of the Lord. How are we to live? He's showing us here. Without further ado, let's, let's go over these four illustrations showing us how to overcome evil. Four illustrations showing us how to overcome evil. They all come in response to some evil. So let's start with this. Number one, in response to the sting of insult. In response to the sting of insult. From the rest of verse 39, he says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And then the first illustration, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This first example Jesus gives of, of bearing evil treatment is, has to do with being slapped on the cheek. It's significant. He uses the word for slap here. There's a Greek word that speaks of being struck with an open fist. There's another Greek word that speaks of being struck with a closed fist. We have a word for that. It's punch, obviously, but that would speak of a much more aggressive and, and violent attack. When you hear a news story about you know, some random person being sucker punched on the street, you think, you know, wow, what a, what a vicious attack. You don't think, what an insult. You think, what an attack. It's different, though, when you witness a slap, which I think is admittedly rare in our day and age. I mean, maybe you're at a nice restaurant for dinner. Across the room, you hear a commotion. People are raising their voices. A lady stands up, slaps a guy across the face, and walks out. And if that were to happen, you would not think, what a vicious attack. He'll survive. The only thing wounded is his pride. But you get the fact how a slap is not meant to really injure someone, but insult someone. And, and that's the point. Jesus is giving us here an illustration, not of an evil person violently attacking you, but of personally insulting you. And in that culture, men slapping one another was a much more common form of insult. In fact, there was a time where the Jews required a hefty fine if one man slapped another across the faith. It was seen as a, a huge insult. That fine was doubled if it was a backhanded slap. It was doubly insulting and offensive. And guess what? Jesus is talking here about a backhanded slap. How do we know? You notice he doesn't just say, if you're slapped on the cheek, turn the other cheek. He says, if you're slapped on your right cheek. It's kind of a random, interesting detail. Why does he mention the right cheek? Well, what does it take to be slapped on your right cheek? Records seem to affirm that most Jews were right-handed. So how do you take your right hand and slap someone standing across from you on their right cheek? There's only one way. It's with the back of your hand. This is a backhanded slap, which in that culture was, and still today, I guess, it's the greatest insult. Now, like this, this doesn't really happen today like it did back then, but I mean, just, just imagine you're at work. Your coworker is, is bothered by something you did. So they get up, they walk over to you, and they just slap you across the face. How would you respond? Honestly, think about it. I mean, after the initial shock, I'm sure outrage would set in. For some people, it would turn to just pure rage. And there's a good chance a fist fight might break out. Right? Even though they slapped you with an open fist, this insult demands retribution with closed fists. Others might not resort to violence, but you can be sure a massive salvo of verbal daggers would come out. Right? Insult would most certainly be returned with insult. But you just, just let now 
what Christ says sink in. Let his prescription sink in when you really think, what would this be like if you're actually slapped across your face, physically insulted? He says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What is he saying? It's plain to see that his words are are much more about what we should not do, how we should not respond to the insult. Our flesh desperately wants us to return insult for insult, to strike back, to get even. But in telling us to turn the other cheek, he's telling us to deny the flesh. We are simply to endure insult without seeking personal revenge or retaliation. Look what Jesus says here, says nothing about self-defense when it comes to a real threat of physical harm. That's just not in the purview of this text. He's talking about someone insulting you, not violently attacking you. In that case, scripture seems to neither prescribe nor prohibit acts of self-defense. But even still, you, you have to always keep in mind what he is saying here, that we are always prohibited from vengeance. There can be no room for malice or hatred in your hearts. You might make a case for self-defense from undue harm, but you can never make a case of wielding evil to oppose evil. Remember, Jesus himself knew both insult and injury. He's not telling you to go anywhere he himself is unwilling to go. Throughout his ministry, he endured insult after insult. And then later during his trial, it escalated. He was literally slapped in the face many times. Matthew 26, 67, speaking of his trial, says that they spat in his face. They beat him with their fists. Others slapped him. And as you know, it would get much worse than that. And he just stood there, sat there, silently enduring, not slandering, not striking back, not not getting even not resisting the evildoer. Why not? Because he perfectly trusted his heavenly father to to deal with the wicked, to judge the wicked in his timing and to deliver him in his timing. It's like 1 Peter 2.23 says, of Christ, that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's also like Isaiah 50, verses 6 through 7 says, which prophetically speaks of the future messianic servant. Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I give my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. And I think that's really at the heart of Christ's response, his own response, which is how we are to respond to evil. When mistreated or insulted, our our dignity, our honor is at stake. And if we live according to the values of this world, we feel we've got to rise up. We have to defend self, assert self, stand for our rights and, and our dignity. Even if that means using evil to fight evil. But we belong to Christ's kingdom now. It comes with a different set of values, which means you know, our, our honor is no longer the most important thing in this world anymore. We care much more for God's honor. We, we represent and bear his name. 
And he's dishonored when we wield evil to repay evil. And look, we know we can endure ill treatment because our own dignity and worth are secure in him. Like the messianic servant said, the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. In the last day, we we will know no disgrace. We'll only know victory by grace. And so we too must, for now, patiently endure all things while entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. God will deliver us from all evil one way or another, one day or another. We're called to patiently endure like the Savior. We're going to dwell on some practical application at the end, but already consider this this first example of how to overcome evil by uh, non-resistance in response to the sting of insult. Secondly here, in response to the arm of the law. This is verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And what you're going to see is that all the examples Jesus gives, they're quite culturally conditioned, meaning he's just drawing on just ordinary situations from life in first century Israel. They're timeless lessons to be had, but only after you figure out what they originally meant. That's what we're trying to do here. Now, here especially to a 21st century Western reader, this just sounds odd, right? Someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, so let them have your coat. I get, okay, that's fine. I've got plenty of shirts and coats. I guess it's not that big of a deal. But back then, this was a huge deal. So first off, you have a legal case where someone is is bringing you to court, seeking damages. This is obviously a a very simple and brief illustration Jesus is giving in in his sermon. But it's clearly assumed that in this instance, you are the guilty party. Whether intentionally or accidentally, you've wronged your neighbor. It's resulted in damages. He's seeking restitution. It's just like he uh, said in verse 25 earlier in the sermon, in that illustration, he assumed you were the guilty party. Look at back, uh, back at verse 25. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. And we're assuming you've done something wrong. You're the guilty party. And someone is suing you, seeking damages through the courts. And then it says this person wants to take your shirt. Why? What's that about? Well, what sits behind this is just Jewish law and custom. Common Jewish dress consisted of an inner garment and an outer garment. The inner garment is this shirt. It's really more like a tunic. It's like a light woolen or linen material, really stretched to the ankles. And everyone wore outside of this a coat or cloak. This was a much heavier robe that shielded the body. This was a key article for warmth. In fact, this cloak was used as a blanket at nighttime, especially for travelers. This was their main source of warmth. So the coat was an essential article. Most people only had one. And so this was a big deal. Your your coat was almost like a survival tool. For this reason, Jewish law actually protected coats from being seized. The outer garment was so valuable, it sometimes would be used as collateral for a pledge. But twice in the Old Testament law, it says coats cannot be kept as a pledge overnight. They're just that essential to survival. 
Also, Jewish law stated that coats were exempt from seizure by the courts. So here's where he's going with this scenario. His, his original audience would have understood this. You've wronged someone. They're pursuing restitution, which is fair. God's law directs us to pay restitution when we uh, inflict damages. But you have few assets to your name. All the court can force you to do is hand over your shirt. That, that has some value, but likely doesn't cover the damages you owe. But still, the court can't force you to hand over your far more valuable coat. We also have to make one more assumption here, although it's easy to do. The context demands it. We have to assume that this person bringing a suit against you is an evildoer. That they're not a good person. Remember, these four illustrations, they all stem from the main principle in verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. We have to assume that this person bringing the suit against you is not a good person. And so the question then is, what what would you do in response to this lawsuit? I'll tell you what most people would do. They would begrudgingly give up their shirt if they had to. Right? If they had no choice, then fine. They would hand it over. They would turn over their inner garment, but not a penny more. I mean, even if restitution, fair restitution demanded that they actually owed more, they should pay more. If this was all the law forced them to give up, that's all they would give. Then I can go above and beyond to help this person. This is a wicked person. And why should they? He doesn't deserve any kindness. If they can get away with paying the bare minimum, even though it's, it's not actually fair, They'll do that. They'll feel justified because this person is evil. You might say this is a type of passive-aggressive retaliation. We don't know what lays behind this dispute, but the point here is that the natural man would seek to make it as hard as possible to pay restitution and then would offer up as little as possible. But now, once again, look at verse 40. You can feel the force of what Jesus is telling us to do here. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And that, that really was unthinkable and unheard of at the time. Even, even, if, even if protected by the law, if you owe more, he's saying do what is right. Give the full amount. Make fair restitution. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's already commanded his disciples to pursue reconciliation with your opponents as peacemakers. Now he's telling them to go above and beyond the law, what the law of man required to make amends. Even when you're dealing with an evildoer, the law of God directs us not to return evil for evil, but to do good to all. That includes paying what you owe. But look, back then, talk about a bitter pill to swallow, and today as well. Most people want to insist on their rights, and most act as if their, their legal rights is the most important thing. Most are happy to hide behind some legal loophole to avoid paying what they owe. But throughout, Jesus is leading us in, in a way that's so contrary to the world. This is a way of not insisting upon your personal rights, your legal rights, but instead insisting upon just doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And I wonder what kind of impact that unexpected display of fairness might have on the watching world. We're going to return to that thought, but, but next, let's, let's move on. 
We want to get through these illustrations. The third one. In response to the abuse of authority. Thirdly, in response to the abuse of authority. This is verse 41. Next one up. He says, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Once again, you can see that these are going to be cultural examples. What does this mean to us? Whoever forces you to go a mile, what is that? Have you ever been forced to walk a mile by someone? Like, forced. And if so, I'd be curious, what for? But what is this about? Once again, though, Christ's original audience, they wouldn't have asked. They would have immediately known what this was about, what this was referring to. Because being forced to go one mile was a relatively common occurrence. By whom? By the Roman soldiers. Jesus gives more than a hint at what he means by using this this term mile. The word is milion in the Greek. It's actually derived, it's a rare case where a Greek word is derived from a Latin word, the Latin word mille, which means a thousand. And that was the Roman word for a mile. And the Roman mile consisted of 1,000 paces. So Jesus is talking about being forced to go one Roman mile. And there's only one group that would ever make them do that. And that is the Roman soldiers. You probably know the Jews at this time, they'd lost sovereignty over their land. So Roman governors ruled their provinces. Roman soldiers filled their cities. The Jews, they had no choice in the matter. They were powerless. They simply had to learn to live with their occupiers as much as they hated it. But the Roman military machine was quite large. And often they needed help transporting supplies for their troops. To help shoulder this burden, they would press into service animals or people of the land, making them carry their load. And so the term for this is impressment. You see a perfect example of this later in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is being crucified, but he's too weak to carry his own cross. And so Matthew 27, 32 says the Romans forced, same word here is verse 41, whoever forces you. It says the Romans forced Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. This is Roman impressment. But the Romans normally limited impressment to just one mile. Mostly for practical reasons. Because a person pressed into service, made to carry a heavy load, they're not going to last much longer than a mile. I mean, they're not conditioned soldiers. They're going to be exhausted under the load and, and just slow them down. So, mile by mile, Roman soldiers would sometimes requisition animals or people, make them carry a bunch of stuff, use them for a mile, and cut them loose, find someone else. You can imagine this practice came with plenty of abuses. I mean, look, if a person or animal was injured during impressment, you think you're going to see compensation? And there's nothing stopping a corrupt group of soldiers from, I don't know, never returning your supplies or mistreating you if you're too slow. I mean, no doubt the Roman practice of impressment was not popular among the Jews. They, they already hated the Roman occupiers. So being forced to carry their baggage was rubbing salt in the wound. And do you know how some Jews chose to respond to their Roman oppressors? With vengeance. There's a group known as the Sicarii. And that term originally referred to a small dagger. 
But these were Jewish zealots who were assassins. In all world history, they're some of the earliest recorded organized group of assassins. And they dressed in plain clothes, but they carried in that cloak, that outer garment, they carried a small sicaria, a small dagger. And as a Roman official, a valuable Roman official happened to walk by on the street, they would move in quickly, strike, and then disappear into the crowd looking like everyone else. They dressed in plain clothes. They believed bloodshed, violence, and retribution was the answer to Rome's abuse of authority. And really, it was the work of these zealots and Sicarii, their, their constant poking, prodding, assassinating of Roman officials that really invited the Romans to invade and put down the Jews in AD 70. But for a third time, with, with, with all this in mind, you can feel the force of what Jesus is saying. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Romans had no real authority to make someone go a mile. It was just by force. And even by their own legal standards, they had no authority to make someone go a second mile. But still, Jesus commands his disciples not to retaliate against such an abuse of authority. Just the opposite, to serve further. If anything was going to show that Christ's kingdom is not of this world and his people are not of this world, this would be it. And this command would have rubbed against the very bones of the Jewish people. How could they do this? But are you starting to see the power in Christ's way here? It's a way of not resisting the evildoer, but returning evil with good. I mean, to to serve your oppressors like that, what good is that? But you see, you're not serving them. You're serving the Lord. And as you go the extra mile, you're showing your oppressors that you serve a, a different emperor, a greater emperor than Caesar. You serve Christ the Lord, who shows us that the way up is down, that the last shall be first, that it's greater to serve than be served. The Lord Jesus laid down his life for his enemies, did he not? And said, so, do you really expect his way to be any different than all this? Now, before we draw some application to connect some dots, one more illustration here. Number four, in response to the plea of charity. In response to the plea of charity. <clears throat> he says in verse 42, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. This last illustration might catch you off guard because it, it seems to have, on the surface, nothing to do with not retaliating against evildoers. This is a call to charity toward the needy who ask of you, whether a gift or a loan. But really, I think the only way to make sense of this saying in context is to assume, as we had to with the second illustration, that the person asking you for charity is an evildoer. Again, the context demands this. All these illustrations stem from verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. And furthermore, in the very next verse, verse 42, he's going to admonish us to love our enemies. So no doubt we have an enemy, an evil opponent in mind as the person asking of you. Now, there have been more than a few who've 
taken verses just like this and, and, and torn them from their context, and then they can be pressed into absurdity. I mean, someone might say, look, here, here's a verse. Jesus is telling you anytime someone asks you for money or a loan, you have to give it to them. Even if you become impoverished or a beggar, that's what he says, right? But now the New Testament actually teaches against indiscriminate giving. Namely, that the lazy and the slothful are not to be supported slash enabled. But Jesus, he's not really talking about charity here. He's talking about retribution. It's worth mentioning, though, that what the Bible says about charity is very important and must be taken seriously. The Old Testament abounds with commands to, to help the poor in our midst, the poor in the land, to assist them. Today, much of this assistance is given through the the taxes we pay as our system of government offers massive assistance to the needy. But even still, we're called to open our hearts and our wallets to those around us in destitution. It's not talking about helping those at the poverty line get a new iPhone, but those who are in genuine need of food, shelter, clothing, work. We cannot close our hearts against them, especially among us in the church, especially among those of us who are blessed with the world's goods, 1 John 3, 16 through 18, we're called to not close our hearts, but to help the genuine needy in our midst. But that's not really what he's getting at here in verse 42. This is less about charity and more about non-retribution. This is just an illustration, and he's still talking about retribution. So keeping the context in mind that we're dealing with evildoers, not returning evil for evil. What's going on in this last one? Well, when you say it's, it's one thing to give to the poor and the needy around you. It's another to give to the poor and needy when they're evil. When they're your enemy. I think what you have going on here is just another type of passive aggressive retaliation in the form of withholding needed aid from your opponents. And that's an easy thing to justify. I mean, you're not, you're not doing them wrong. You're just refusing to do them good. You're just holding back, helping them. And in the background, the Jews were known for this, which is probably why Jesus uses this illustration. But Jewish teachers in the time taught that charity should only be granted to the godly and the righteous, not to the sinner or to the enemy. Because they might use your gift to gain an advantage over you. So a Pharisee living in Jerusalem in the second century BC wrote this, quote, Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, end quote. And Jesus here, he's really condemning that type of spirit. And when you say that, that's a vengeful spirit. They're not doing anything wrong, but by withholding what is good, it's still a vengeful spirit. And that's what this whole passage is about. You may have a person who, they're, they're a wicked person. Maybe they hate God. They hate you. But they're still in need of food or shelter or clothing. And you have the means to provide, but you turn them away, happy to watch their suffering because they're wicked. Isn't that a subtle way of returning evil for evil? But Christ says, this this is not the way of the Lord. God himself will righteously judge the wicked in his timing. But until then, even God shows goodness to the evil. 
Look down a few more verses. Verse 45. Christ is going to call us to be sons of our Father. Verse 45. Who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And we likewise should do good even to our enemies. And the point Jesus is making is that withholding charitable giving should not be a means of retaliating against those who do you wrong. You should not view your enemy's adversity as a chance to rub it in their face, but as an opportunity to extend love, mercy, aid, just like God did when his people were enslaved in Egypt, just like he did when we were enslaved in sin, giving people what they don't deserve. Isn't that the definition of grace? And it's this witness of unexpected Christ-like love that will, I think, truly impact the world. And that, I believe, is the golden thread that weaves through these four illustrations. We've seen these four illustrations of overcoming evil. Today, they've turned into popular sayings. Turn the other cheek. Give away your coat. Go the extra mile. Give to him who asks. But as we've studied them, we, we found they all actually have to do with life in first century Israel. The Lord was just taking his teaching on not resisting evil and, and using examples that the people then would have understood. Today, these illustrations are culturally obsolete. We don't sue people for shirts anymore. And the military doesn't make us carry things. But the greater value in Christ's teaching comes in seeing, just watching how he fleshes out this main principle of not returning evil for evil. Not playing judge and taking eye for an eye. That's not our role. But instead returning evil with good. And just, just from the pattern the Lord sets, it's, it's easy to extrapolate and make our own examples. Countless, we should. Ways that we would apply in our own day and age, non-retribution, not repaying the evil person. Maybe your spouse pushes your buttons like only they know how to do. And you could return fire immediately like you normally do. Or instead you could do nothing. Right? Just refrain, pray, and be like Christ. When reviled, do not revile in return. Maybe you're a teen at school being shamed on social media for pursuing sexual purity by a little small mob. I think today's equivalent of being slapped on the right cheek. You could retaliate with your own harsh words, or you could not. Or you could simply continue to represent righteousness unashamed. Maybe your shift manager at work got wind that you're a Christian, and she hates Christians. So now she schedules you for all the worst shifts, makes you close late every night, you could complain, you could, you could sue for discrimination, or you, you could ask if your shift manager needs any help on the weekend. You could ask if there's any way you could help serve her more. Maybe your relative has always maligned you for your faith, finds these little subtle ways to poke jabs at you, but now he's fallen on hard times, he can't pay some medical bills, and he's reached out to you for help. You could ignore him, you could give him a few dollars. Or you could go above and beyond and really help him. We could go on. There's countless examples. Just think of any way you might be treated with evil. Think of any unjust treatment where your flesh is calling out eye for an eye. I need to get this person back. 
But Christ is saying, no, deny the flesh and its thirst for retribution. Why should we? And to what end? I mean, we're talking about evildoers, right? Why shouldn't we let them have it? They, they deserve it. And they do. Yeah. But we've learned it, it, it's not our place to bring down the axe. We are disqualified as the ultimate judge because we too are evildoers. We're sinners too. We've only been spared and forgiven by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Remembering how God sent his only son, Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to love his enemies that we might be cleansed and made friends. Now by believing in him, we can be reconciled and saved. And now by faith, we're meant to marvel at God's saving grace, which we have received. That should drastically change our outlook on the lost. Yes, there are some seriously wicked people on earth who need to be judged. And that judgment is God's prerogative. Leave wrath to him. That's Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's perfectly righteous. We can leave that to him. But knowing that we were only spared from that judgment by his grace, we should be more so moved to compassion for the lost, even the evil. Look at them. They're dead in their sins. They're lost. They're blind, just like we once were. And so maybe, just maybe the Lord might use us to reach them. And that's what we want most now. We're not qualified to be the ultimate judge of our fellow sinner, but God's grace has made us qualified to be a witness of his saving, transforming grace that they might be drawn near if the Lord wills. And again, that's what's behind this principle of not resisting the evildoer and its illustrations. You see what they all have in common is that the action Jesus prescribes is like radically unexpected, unheard of up until he said it. What he says, it's just not how the natural man thinks or would ever think. The natural man operates off the instinct of revenge, retribution, retaliation. This is the flesh. But just stop and think about the witnessing power if you had a meek, humble believer who would respond to evil treatment and still turn the other cheek or give away your coat or go the extra mile. Give to him who asks. That would have a mighty impact. And how many might then wonder, who is this person? What makes them so different? Nobody acts like this. What enables them to to cheerfully endure this harsh treatment by an opponent? You see, this, what Jesus tells us to do, it's going to create a real opportunity, not a guarantee, but an opportunity that as we are not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evildoers around us might not get judged, but they just might get saved. When you combine the gospel message with, with a gospel example like this, you have real witnessing power. You know, there are many examples of this in scripture, but none greater than that of the Lord himself. Think again of his time on the cross. He was enduring the pinnacle of unjust evil treatment. But he never reviled in return. He never fought back. He never retaliated. 
even though he could have done so justly, but he just stayed on that cross to literally love his enemies to death that they might be transformed into his friends. There's no greater example of overcoming evil with good than Jesus. He doesn't even curse his tormentors, but he prays for them on the cross. Father, forgive them. for They do not know what they're doing. He was moved to compassion, even on the cross. Jesus remained faithful, righteous, and just good to the very last breath. And did you know there was one person in the whole, that whole time that witnessed the whole thing? There was one person who saw every hour of Christ's crucifixion, at least one person, I should say, but we know one person witnessed every interaction. He saw every response to evil. It was the chief Roman centurion. He's the main guy in charge that uh, ensuring that these three criminals would die on their crosses. That was his job. He had to stick around to make sure all three of these guys died. But time and time again, this centurion was just standing by watching. Every time Jesus was treated with evil, he repaid it with good, with kindness. He never struck back. And the centurion just watches this for six hours, six hours of the cross. Is it any wonder then that when it came time for Jesus to breathe his last breath, Mark 15, 39 says that of all the people, it was this Gentile Roman centurion who was the first person to confess after the death of Jesus. Truly, this man was the son of God. This is a high calling to to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to deny self like Jesus. It's an impossible calling. You can't do it apart from his transforming grace and his spirit. But for those who believe, this is his way. And for us, it looks like denying pride and the thirst for retribution that comes from it. When wronged, we're so driven to defend, self-assert, self-avenge self. And if we have to, we'll use evil to do so. But we have a Savior who tells us to deny self, pick up our crosses now, Follow him in his way. And really, it's only when you come to the end of self that you can overcome this desire for personal retribution. You're going to be wronged, like Jesus was, to no end. He, he promises that for us as his disciples. And when that happens, cry out for justice and vindication. But no, that ultimately belongs to the Lord. So wait on him without taking matters into your own hands. Your soul is secure in him, as is your sense of self. Will you trust in the Lord, wait on the Lord, and in the meantime, witness for the Lord? It's long been said that the best way to to conquer your enemies is to make them your friends. We could add that the best way to overcome evil and the evildoer is to see them transformed into good. And so may we be used by Christ as his witnesses to that end. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, we we thank you for these words today. We we know them well, the, the precious words and sayings of our Lord that rightly so have risen to the top of our minds as we think of the, the teaching of our Savior, the Master. But we appreciate even more understanding what they mean in the heart, the spirit of what the Lord wants us to know, how he wants us to live as his disciples, those 
who have been transformed from evil into good by grace and now go and do the same. We know it's in our flesh, certainly, to respond in like kind when we are mistreated. Our flesh cries out for vengeance and will happily use evil means to bring it about. But I pray, Lord, you help us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, to put on the righteousness of the Lord, and to to go the other way, to even return evil with good, and to not retaliate against the evildoer. What a witness this would have in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, our, our church relationships, and especially those outside these walls, in the watching world. Because we all know this is so unordinary. Any response of non-retaliation is unexpected. It, it impacts the world. You, you add to that the power of, of the gospel message and that there's real power to be had here, Lord. This is the way. We thank you for Christ's example and living it, that he went there first. He showed us the way first. May we now be compelled to follow by your grace and enabled to do it by your spirit and leave a witness behind wherever we go of this transforming power. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.